Welcome to War Room, the official podcast of the U.S. Army War College Online Journal, graciously supported by the Army War College Foundation. Please join the conversation at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. We hope you enjoy the program. You could subscribe to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast, at iTunes, Google Play, or your favorite download service, and never miss the great content we offer. Hello, and welcome to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast. I'm Michael Nyberg, Chair of War Studies here at the U.S. Army War College. Thank you for joining us for today's program. I'm joined today by Frederick Logeval, who is Professor of International Relations and History at Harvard. Thank you very much for joining us here at the War Room. Fred, welcome. Oh, I'm delighted to be here. Thank you. So, Fred, you are probably best known for your Pulitzer Prize-winning book, Embers of War, about the kind of hinge point between the French War in Vietnam and the American War in Vietnam. And I do, if we have time, want to talk about that. But I'm really interested in the new project you're working on, which is a two-volume biography of John Kennedy, which breaks at 1956-57. So we, we were discussing earlier that you have the first volume done. You're starting to work on the second and I guess I'm curious, with a, with a life like Kennedy's, born at the end of the First World War, all the things that he did, how do you, in your head, begin to conceive of a large project like that? And I know it was supposed to be a one-volume book, and now it's two. So can you kind of walk us through how you were thinking of this in your head? Yeah, no, uh, I, I felt, um, I've, I've long had an interest in biography as a genre. And I thought at some point in the back of my head, yeah, maybe at some point I'd like to try my hand at biography. Kennedy has been an interest of mine and somebody I've studied in various contexts pertaining to the Cold War, to to the Vietnam War maybe in particular. I open Embers of War with his visit to Indochina in 1951 and, and so forth. And so I had this idea that even though we have a huge amount of, we have a huge literature on the Kennedy family and on various aspects of Kennedy's life, uh, various episodes in his presidency, we have surprisingly few biographies. Mm. And so one reason that I'm doing this book is is, is to in fact provide a comprehensive, reasonably comprehensive look at what I think is an extraordinary life. The other thing I'm doing, the conceit, if you will, is that I'm using Kennedy's life to tell the story of America's rise, first to great power status and then superpower status. Because you can use his life. You mentioned that he's born He's born in 1917. He dies in 63. It's an incredible half century, and I'm trying to tell that story as well. So why do you think there haven't been that many biographies of Kennedy? I mean, he's such a incredibly important figure. I mean, everybody has an association, a mind, a mind presence with, with John F. Kennedy. Why, why do you think he hasn't uh, been written about more? Uh, you know, I, I don't have a good answer to that question. And it's something that the part of volume one that I still need to write is the preface. Uh, and I think in the preface, I need to, to explore this a little bit. Um, we've certainly had some biographies. They have not been, I would say, life and times comprehensive biographies. The most recent book is Bob Dalek, I would say, in 2002. Subsequent to that, some shorter works. I don't, Mike, have a good uh, answer to the question. Maybe there's a sense on the part of authors that, oh, surely that's been done, when in fact it hasn't. Maybe there's a sense on the part of publishers that we want any Kennedy book that we can get uh, and therefore, authors write quickie books. There are a lot of short books on the Kennedy family or on, on, on Jack Kennedy himself. And therefore, people don't spend the time required uh, to, to go through 
the collections at the Kennedy Library and elsewhere. And by the way, that collection is an absolute goldmine. It is. Uh, there's no, it so is. much good stuff at that at the Kennedy Library that a, a biographer or somebody doing an in-depth study of uh, of JFK could could access. And of course, I'm I'm right there, so it's just down the street from me, and it's been a, a wonderful opportunity. I don't I don't I guess what I'm suggesting is I don't have a good answer to that question, but it fascinates me that we don't have more biographies. I would say we have, going back to his death in 63, I think we have two, maybe three biographies. Uh, and, and Dallas is 17, 18 years old. Yeah, and it's it's one volume. He's 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 goes in depth on some things, but quite necessarily, Bob doesn't cover various other aspects of the president's life um, in a way that I'm trying to do. So even in two volumes, obviously there's things you have to sure. dare to drop. So oh, did yeah. you have a kind of guiding set of questions or something that you that you wanted to stay focused on? I mean, the easy answer is, I guess, to say, I'll write a book about his romance with Jackie, or I'll write mm-hmm. about his infidelities. But obviously, that's not the kind of book you're interested in. No. And I think you, you point to an important question that all of us who are historians, whether we're biographers or not, have to confront, which is, what am I going to mm-hmm. zero in on here? We all have to make choices as historians. I think I had a sense from early on that I wanted to be, I wanted to cover the whole life. I wanted it to be a a so-called life and times biography, bring my historian's training to bear, which means that the times, the context uh, is important. I'm also a diplomatic or a foreign relations historian, so I think there's an emphasis on that part of his life. He himself had a special interest in diplomacy and statecraft, which he developed from an early point. So I think it's fair to say that I, I zero in on that. And then the other thing I guess I would say here, Mike, is that the World War II period, which really begins with his father's ambassadorship in 1938, ambassadorship to Britain in 1938, and ends obviously then with the end of the war in '45 was totally interesting to me before I began. And I wanted to investigate that fully. And in fact, I have eight chapters on the war years. beginning. So 38 to 45 cover about eight years. That's something I really wanted to look at. And then as you said earlier, uh, volume one takes the story up through then his congressional years, his run for the Senate, and the, it, it, ends, it ends really in late 56 when he decides that he's running for president. So I'm really interested in this question of how you take big topics. We, we've both written yeah, books yeah. on big, big topics and how you decide you're going to narrow them down. And yeah. I guess I'm thinking for you, it's, it's partly driven by the archives, which aren't going to be as interested in Marilyn Monroe as they are about yeah. Kennedy's views of foreign relations. So in part, it's the, it's the sources that you're choosing to use as well that's guiding this. Yeah, it is It is the sources. And I'm just keen to, I want to throw this back to you in a second, but but it's such a good point that you make. And to in some instances, I would say it's to the point of being um, frustrating. What do I mean? Just that there are topics in Kennedy's life that frankly, I as a biographer would li- would like to know more about and the materials are more or less silent. So there's not as much on some of the, shall we say, non-policy-related uh, um, topics, maybe some of, the, some of the issues that pertain not to his education, where there's lots of material, 
at the Kennedy Library and at Choate, for example. I just went to Choate to, to go through the, the papers they have for his prep school years. But there are various other topics, various other ones that I wanted to have more information than I've actually been able to get. But how do you tackle this same question in terms of making the decisions about what you're going to zero in on? I think it's really tough. I mean, it's it's true of an undergraduate or graduate paper or a a war college paper, anything that you write. There's limited time and limited resources. So I guess I think of what each chapter has to have or each part of the book has to have a kind of question that relates back to the master question that you're trying to ask. And what... What I'm excited about, why I can't wait to read this book, is that you're not looking for dirt or scandal. I mean, this is a serious study revolving around this question of what American power meant in those 50 years that John Kennedy had his life. And so that, that to me, must help you to organize what you're going to look at and what you're not going to look at. Yeah, it does. It does. And And I imagine that there will be readers who will be frustrated or will complain that I didn't give enough attention to topic X, Y, or Z. But even with two volumes, I'm finding that there is a that we have to make these kinds of choices. Right. I have to decide, yes, I'm going to focus a lot on this, but as a consequence, I'm not going to go into great detail on this. You can be a Bob Caro and produce five volumes, as he's doing on, on LBJ. Sidney Blumenthal is doing five volumes on a kind of political biography of Abraham Lincoln. But even Blumenthal and Caro have to make choices. Right. Uh, given, notwithstanding the fact that they have a thousand pages, uh, in, in Caro's case at least, uh, almost per volume, um, um, we have to make these choices. And, and you and I, at write, writing in somewhat um, lesser detail, have to think about them maybe more than those guys do. I think that's right. I think about that's right. Uh, when you have a thousand pages, you can talk about a lot more than you might talk about when you have a hundred thousand words. And as you're, as you're putting this project together... And you're thinking of the kind of periodization of an individual's life and trying to match that with the periodization of the wider story you're trying to tell. Did that kind of come to you naturally, or did you find yourself kind of really having to think about where do I think the key breakpoints are, both in this man's life and in the larger story of American power I'm trying to tell? That's a really good question. I I, I think it came to me uh, over time. I don't have a I don't have a, f- a firm answer to that that fascinating question. I think that it was as a consequence of delving into primary sources, secondary sources, figuring out what points I thought were most important and that I really needed to 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 drill down on, which parts maybe were that where I could have the narrative move a little bit more quickly, uh, and it came to me. I think. Yeah, I have to. I have to think further about that. But I think it came to me uh, over time. I did have a sense. I think going in, <clears throat> I did have a sense going in that that the early part of his life, he's a, he's a sickly child, um, and he is part of this very large family and ex- with an ex- an extraordinary um, in an extraordinary set of circumstances that I wanted to give some serious attention to those early years. If it's true, as the social psychologists tell us, that you know we're substantially shaped as human beings by the time we're in our mid-20s, maybe our late 20s, it stands to reason that as a biographer, I should give serious attention to, uh, right. to, to my subject's first quarter century. Um, and so that certainly helped guide how I approach this. But but that's the best answer I can give. 
Yeah, for me, I find I, I write outline after outline after outline oh, yeah. and try to figure out what do I want the chapters to look like? How do things have to be moved around to fit that outline? And Outlines are so important, aren't I, they? I'm constantly I mean, writing outlines. Now, how do you do them? So what I typically do, and, and I'll, I'll outline as I go, and I typically, it's the only thing that I will do with pen and paper. Me too. Meaning, meaning I, I actually, Me too. I actually no cards, do. Actual yeah. eight by five note cards. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. But I think without the outlines, I'm sure there are historians who or, or writers who do it differently, but outlines are just critical. Yeah, I, I need to have a sense. I'm also a person that wants the chapters to be reasonably of the same length, so I'm not writing one very long chapter and one very short chapter. I want... I want everything to have a kind of symmetry to it, and the outlining helps me think that through, and it also helps me think more about where I really think the breaks between chapters need to be. What are the important events? What are the big changes that are coming? And um, I know I wanted to talk to you about why the cha- why you picked 1957 as the break between the two books, but um, you must have been thinking about that in the chapters as well. Where are the key kind of breakpoints? What are the transitions I want the reader to understand as he or she is going through the book. Oh yeah, I'm thinking about that all the time, and I, you know, I, I, I probably have a fairly uh, what's the word conventional view on this, meaning that the, a lot of the chapter breaks are where I suppose one would anticipate that they are. So that there's a chapter break, for example, after he finishes prep school at Choate. Uh, there's a chapter break after he finishes college in 1940. Has, has written what will become his first book, Why England Slept, just as France is falling. And it's an extraordinary say, in, moment right there. In that case, you have a beautiful symmetry. You have a beautiful coincidence that his graduation yeah. from Harvard is at this exact moment when everything is about to go completely nuts, right? Yeah, everything yeah. is about to, the, the invasion of Poland has already happened. The war's actually begun. The United States is about to get in. That's a kind of perfect moment. That one must have struck you as just blindingly <laughs> obvious. It was blindingly obvious. And, you know, it's just, it, just to give one little, bit of detail here. Two publishers turned down the opportunity to publish Why England Slept because they suggested this is in April and May of or May of 1940. They said, well, American readers are not going to be really interested in this. Hmm. When it then is published by a small publisher a couple months later after the fall of France, all of a sudden now American readers are desperate to understand what it is about British decision-making in the 1930s that caused them to be unprepared for this, um, for this struggle that they were now in. So the timing, in a sense, was perfect for okay. him. I'm making a note to myself to go back and check that book out because this is the period that I'm working in right now. I mean, yeah. And it's also remarkable that this is, a, this is an undergraduate senior thesis that yeah. gets published as a book. I mean, yeah. that's, it's no wonder two publishers turned him down despite his family connections. Yeah. And, I mean, and the other thing to be said about that is that, that those publishers— I think in both instances, read the, the thesis, the senior thesis, which was substantially the same as the book. And, and, I, and I, so I want to give him credit for this, but it's also the case that it, was, it read like a thesis. It had some typos in it. There were some awkward constructions. It wasn't uh, certainly the finished product, whereas the publisher who subsequently decided to pursue this read a more polished version uh, and as a consequence, decided to, to offer the contract uh, and did very well by it. So do you, switching gears a little bit here, yeah. do you tend to do your research and then write? Or do you think of these two things as a kind of similar process? How do you, uh, different historians I know, different writers do this differently. Yeah. I, and I'd, I'd be interested to know what you have to say about this. I think I've changed. Like many graduate students, I was taught to do the research on note cards 
and, and you know, there's a whole method that we were taught in graduate mm-hmm. school to, on how to mm-hmm. do this. And I tended to do most, uh, if not all, of the research up front. As I've gotten older, um, I'm, or I'm not sure it's, it's related to that, but as time has progressed, I've changed. And so for this book, I tend to, I, I tend to research, then do a little bit of writing, then I research. I think the fact that in my case, the Kennedy Library is just down the street, as I said, makes a difference. I, I, can, I know that it's there. Um, it's on the same subway line, right? It's, it's on, on the, the red same, line. It's on the red line. Uh, yeah, and nothing it's very, easy. Yeah, it's very easy to get there. And I think if if I were still at Cornell, if I and I when I signed the book, I was still at Cornell when I signed the contract, and I had to come in for a sustained period of time, maybe a few weeks here and a few weeks there, maybe that would affect how I do it. But how do you how do you how do you do your research? I do research until I borrow a line. I was on a jury one time and the lawyer said I'm going to show you enough pieces of the puzzle that you're going to know it's a zebra which was his way of explaining kind of probable cause once I haven't done enough research that I think it's a zebra I'll start writing Uh, just because in part I want to get my research down on paper I want to I want to get the ideas out of my head and get them into something and then as I'm researching I may go back and revise those ideas so it's um it's a version of the old line about the first draft you write you really are writing to yourself and your second, third drafts, you're thinking about your reader. Yeah. And I'm I'm an totally impatient right. I'm an impatient person by nature, so I don't want to wait until one stage is complete before I start into the other. Um, so you you signed this contract five. You've been thinking about this for five six years yeah. then. Yeah. So that that's remarkable in and of itself to mm-hmm. to devote that much time. Well, for me, it, I yeah. I don't typically get that much time to think about a single project. Well, but, you're I mean you're you're amazing in terms of of, of how you the, the, the productivity Mike that you impatience. have and it's just my um, impatience and uh, and the rest of us uh, can't really you know operate that way. I think in my case, the fact that there's a move from Ithaca, New York, to Cambridge, Massachusetts, uh, not in the midst of this process, but at a fairly early point, certainly slowed me down in terms of what I was able to do, and then it's adjusting to a new institution, sure. developing some new courses. But also, maybe more interestingly, I have found that biography um, brings its own set of challenges. I'm sure I haven't mastered those challenges. I'm a first-timer at this. But I do think that the, the, that the, the work involved in conceiving a Life and Times biography and then researching it uh, has proven to be uh, a learning process, let me put it that way. And that probably has meant that this thing has taken a bit longer to get to this point than, than, than it might have otherwise. Yeah, which is as it should be, right? I mean, every project I do, at least, I feel like I'm learning everything from scratch and starting again and figuring out a new place, a new time period. And yeah, no question. Yeah, it is true. The past is a different country. You have to sort of get your feet into it and figure out what's going on and yeah. figure out who the players are and... Um, so I have in front of me a copy of your Pulitzer Prize winner, Embers of War, a book that was uh, tremendously important to me in shaping the way that I was thinking about doing international history and foreign relations history. Um, and you begin this book with the anecdote in 1951 of a young Congressman Kennedy, or senator at that point. Congressman. Congressman Kennedy, uh, going with his brother Robert, right, to Vietnam on a fact-finding mission, and the kind of impressions that they had, and you begin the book with that anecdote. So did you, I guess what I'm, what I'm wondering is if there's already a connection in your mind. So this is a book that mm-hmm. you write about the French war in Vietnam, really, and the kind of hinge between the French and American wars, but it starts with an anecdote about an American. Yeah. So were you already thinking in this direction that the American view of this was going to somehow be really important to the way you were going to understand the French war? 
Yeah, I think so. I, I can't recall exactly how I came up with that opening vignette. And it was long before I knew I was going to be writing a biography of John F. Kennedy. In fact, it was I had not thought that I would be doing biography at all uh, and certainly had not settled on, a, on, on Kennedy as a topic. Um, I think, Mike, that in the back of my mind, or maybe even in the front, was a, a, a thought that though I want to look very closely at the French War, because I had determined already that the French War was a fascinating topic in its own right sure that had is. not really been written all that much about, especially in English, mm. especially in recent years. So it was worthy of its own book. I think I probably also knew that I was writing for an American publisher, primarily an American reading audience. So to have a, a vignette at the opening that brought in an American, somebody who would in due course be of central importance to the American phase of this conflict just made sense. And so I could actually situate this right at the start at the heart of the of the of the French war because because late 51 is really when when it's at its in some ways it's it's most um, uh, certainly at its zenith in terms of, of, of the, the, the fighting in Indochina. So it's a key moment in that war. Have an American who a decade later will become president was a, an, an effective way for me to, 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 to suggest that this is both a French war and an American war. And one of the themes in the book is that the French war was an American war from mm -hmm. a very early, very early point. One of those eureka moments in the research, Mike, and you've had them... I had them at various points, but one of them was when I realized that long before the end of the French War, the Americans were more committed to the struggle than were the French themselves. Mm. So by 53, if not before, I think most French officials are looking for some way of getting out of this thing. I think they're understanding that we probably can't win any sort of lasting victory. And it's at least in part the Americans who say, no, in effect, you have to stay in. You've mm -hmm. got to turn the war effort around before we can really talk about negotiating with Ho Chi Minh. And so the Americans are critical to this. And I begin with Kennedy at a, at a fascinating moment in time. The last thing I'll say about this, Kennedy keeps a diary. Both Kennedys. And by the way, Patricia was also on the trip. We should remember that she was there. But Bobby and Jack keep diaries. Isn't it beautiful when people keep diaries oh. or write letters home? I, I mean, right? it's just extraordinary. Bobby and so, Kennedy's letters home to his parents from his Palestine trip in yeah. 1948 are fascinating. Totally. Uh, and so that that was just another reason why I thought I can do this in a way that's evocative, that's rich, uh, and I hoped get the reader into the story. Well, one of the things I love about the way that you write, um, we talk sometimes in the publishing of history about the difference between narrative history, which is telling a story, and analytic history, which is kind of describing the, the importance of an event. And narrative history sometimes comes with a slightly negative connotation, that you're telling me a pretty story, but I don't know what it means. Your work does both. It is, it is beautiful to read, and it balances that great narrative, which is the introduction of Kennedy coming in 1951. And again, a man who probably didn't know for sure he was going to be president in 1961, but wouldn't have been surprised either, let's be honest, right? Yeah. And then going back through the book and, and adding the analysis into the book as well. So I guess I want to ask, this is by way of asking you, were you consciously thinking of the balance between narrative and analysis as you were putting the book together? 
And did you have a kind of balance you were hoping to strike? Yeah, I mean, I, 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 I think I was from the moment, from the outset, wanting to have a kind of analytical narrative, if I can put it that way. That's a phrase that's sometimes used, which I, mm-hmm. which I quite like. Uh, again, it's a, it's a tough sweet spot to hit. Sometimes it, it is a tough sweet spot to hit, um, and I, I was conscious of the fact uh, that it was a, a commissioned book by Random House. They had come to me and said, "We would like to have somebody write a, a big history." of how the whole thing happened in Vietnam. Oh, I didn't go, know that. Going so back to World War II. The publisher came to you with they the came idea. They oh, came I, to me. Oh, I wasn't aware of that. Yeah, and they came to me, and, and I wasn't, uh, I was intending to write a book at that point about Walter Lippmann and the Cold War, which I think I mentioned to you. Right. But so, but that, you know, I, I was conscious of the fact that this was um, a, a trade publisher, but I also wanted, and this goes to your question, I wanted scholars to take this seriously. This meant that I had to have an interpretive thrust, and um, it's a tough. I'm, I'm still struggling really with. Tough. I don't know. I mean, yeah. I'm sure you do, Mike, as well. Struggling with how best to do that. There were times when my editor, David Ebershoff, would say to me as he read chapters, um, "In effect, there's a little too much interpretation, or a little too much Fred here," uh, and so I, he would want me to kind of dial it back. But to his credit. He also wanted some of that. So he wanted that analytical narrative, and that's what I strive to, to, to really, do. Really, it took me, my aha moment, my eureka moment in graduate school is when I figured out that when my dissertation advisor said, this reads beautifully, he didn't mean it as a compliment. He meant that <laughs> you're, you're, you're giving me too much narrative, I want more analysis. Yeah. So yeah. figuring out the balance between those two things, again, it's figuring out who your reader is. Um, and I think you and I are aiming for the same readership, an intelligent general reader who may not have the historiographical background but is really interested in this yeah, stuff and, yeah. and wants a sophisticated, dare I say, challenging book to read on a topic. Yeah, and I think I think that's exactly right. And I think, in fact, we can do it. It's it's it is a learning thing. It's it's not easy to do, but I do think that we can strive to write that kind of history, and that we should. Right. The problem is, you can write a very analytic history that is so jargon based and so yeah. it's essentially written for four or five other scholars in your field, and those books have a value, but they don't reach the audience that you they, would like to reach. Yeah, they do have a value. And I can imagine, in fact, I anticipate in my in, in the future, uh, God willing, that, that in future books I will write those kinds of books because they have a place. I have in mind, for example, a, a, a more interpretive book asking and addressing some big questions about the war in Vietnam. Since I've spent time on that in the past, there's some things I want to say that will be highly interpretive, that will probably be with the university press, Mm-hmm. Or of course, journal articles, or, mm-hmm. which which are, which also are mm-hmm. crucial to our discipline. Um, it's another way to another important way to do this. Well, before the sand runs out of the hourglass, as it is doing, I have two more questions sure. for you. Um, the first is, um, I'm curious about what kinds of books you read. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think to be a really good writer, you've got to read broadly and widely. Okay. So. You're getting on an airplane, you're flying to Sweden, you're flying someplace. What yeah. kind of book are you taking with you? Well, lately I've been reading a lot of biography because it is a, I've come to realize it's a somewhat different genre maybe than I anticipated. It's mm-hmm. not quite history, but it is also history. So I've been reading uh, lately to see what other biographers do, both academic historians uh, and others who are not academics to, to get a sense from what they do. I also think it's important to read at least some fiction uh, I don't get enough of it. It's probably uh, two or three novels maybe per year. 
uh, I find it difficult, Mike, and I think maybe you do too, to just keep up with everything that's happening. But I, really so, hard. but I make choices. Lately, it's been a lot of biography. So you do have the same stack of books that I have of just things I need to read and want to read. Oh, yeah. This giant yeah. stack that you're just never going to get. The to. bedside stack just gets bigger and bigger. Yeah. Okay. And then the last question before the sand does run out of this hourglass: uh, Can you give our listeners a little bit of a sense of of your process? Do you like to write in isolation, mm-hmm. big chunks of time? What what what? Where do you like to write? How do you like to write? What's your writing environment look well, like? Well, I'm I'm I, it's, I've shifted a little bit over time, but I do tend to write at home. Uh, I do tend to have a rough word count in mind uh, per day. So if it's a writing day, uh, if I if I have roughly a thousand words that they aren't perfect, but that I'm fairly happy with, that's a good day. One of the things that I've had to learn is the importance of stopping when you get to whatever your goal is. I used to think, well, I should keep going if I'm on a roll. But in fact, as others have suggested to me and as I've come to realize myself, no, it's better to stop even mid-sentence mm. because then the next day when you pick up, you actually can, 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 can just keep going. And I've had to learn this the hard way. It's, I think, worked for me. I don't often, I don't always get a thousand words. If it's, if it's a difficult day, sometimes I can struggle with one paragraph. Uh, or a couple of paragraphs. So it doesn't always work, but that's my goal. And then I'm continually revising as I go. Always. Continually revising. And by the way, love that part of the process. Yeah, me too. Revising is the oh, key. yeah. Yeah, well, we are out of time. The sand is out of the hourglass. This went by too quickly as I expected that it would. Uh, Fred, thank you so much for, for being part of this podcast. Thank you so much for taking the time to come to Carlisle, and hopefully we'll get you back here sometime uh, soon. It's been a pleasure. I hope to come back. Thanks so much. Thank you. And that concludes our program. Thank you for listening. The views expressed in this podcast reflect those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views, policies, or positions of the U.S. Army or the Department of Defense. Let us know what you think. Provide us your feedback, comments, or suggestions through our webpage at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. And have a great day.